Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Round Podcast. We're coming to you from the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Round Podcast for January 24th, 2014, and we are continuing our discussion of why Buddhism with our special guest, Mushim Ikeda. The comment about science and knowing the size of the universe is interesting to me because sometimes we, I think scientists think, yeah, we know. We know how big the universe is. We know all these distances. I sat there calculating it, you know, um, and I don't want to accuse scientists of anything, but uh, there can be a kind of arrogance there, I think, of thinking that by quantifying something, we can know it, right? Um, but rather than be critical of others, I would turn it on myself and just try and keep that awareness of myself, too, of do I know what the Dharma is, right? Um, do I know right and wrong? Do I know this person is good or this person is bad? Um, I think that that really think that's part of Shinran's spirit is, um, I think he kind of allows himself to, or he views himself as very arrogant and um, uh, ignorant, right? Um, but I think sometimes he allows himself to make mistakes in his writings um, and then just has this flash where he realizes, no, that's my ego talking. That's, that's ridiculous. That's self-power. That's um, this. And that's not what it's about. Right? It's about that bigger picture, um, that thing that's bigger than us. Uh, and so, so also on the science kind of side is this issue of Okay, so we know how big it is, so we've quantified it, so what? Does that answer any questions about how I should treat my neighbor or how I should treat myself? Um, it could, it could be part of an answer, but intrinsically, is there uh, any kind of ethics built into that? Uh, and I, I feel like that's part of what uh, Buddhism contributes also, is that there is this um, ethical aspect to it. But we're gonna have to put that off for a later episode. Really? Yeah. I know I brought it up. <laughs> you, yeah, you brought, brought it up, and my question was, was going to be... Okay, maybe ask the question. Yeah, and the question, my question was going to be, because I do actually, I think this is, pertains, why Buddhism, to me, points to a distinction mm. between, say, Buddhist practice of mindfulness and possibly an interpretation of secularized mindfulness. And that distinction is that I believe that all forms of Buddhism have codes of ethics. And in fact, ethics is extremely important. And I was going to ask how Jodo Shinshu um, holds that. I know in Zen, we, we regularly receive the five precepts and sometimes more precepts for the Bodhisattva precepts, but the five big precepts are huge in the forms of practice that I've done. Mm-hmm. That's one of the crazy things about Jodo Shinshu. <laughs> um, there's no precepts. We don't take any precepts. Um, and it comes from Shinran's experience as a monk, as a Japanese 
Tendai, right, Mahayana monk who took bodhisattva precepts. I think Tendai at that point didn't take the, um, I don't think they had a, the Vinaya. They took bodhisattva precepts. That's kind of this major thing that Saicho sets up, right? That um, there are precepts, but they're bodhisattva precepts. And Japan didn't get the, or, or a lot of the major schools that beca later became major schools aren't in like Dharmagupta, Govinia, or whatever, very different than the rest of East Asia, right? But there's still some idea of precepts. And then Shinran gets married. <laughs> he leaves the mountain and gets married. He breaks one of the major rules, right? Um, openly. Uh, and so Jodo Shinshu is founded, the founder broke the rules. He's a bad monk. He's not keeping the precepts. He's breaking the precepts, right? And that's, but that's part of the system, though, too. Even someone that breaks the precepts, even a bad monk, is embraced by Amida Buddha, right? And uh, so, so it, ours is not precept-based. And I think it's, it may be unique in that sense. I'm not sure. But it definitely, that's one of the um, uh, major characteristics, I think, of Jodo Shinshu, is that it's not precept-based which makes it very ethically ambiguous. Um, but it's not non-ethical, because it's still in a Mahayana context of six paramitas, of compassion, uh, of uh, Amida Buddha. Right? But it puts a lot of that on Amida Buddha's side, right? where following the rules isn't the path. Um, so, so, so I think Jodo Shinshu ethics is actually a really interesting topic. Um, really abstruse, possibly, or complex, subtle. Maybe subtle is a good word to put it. Right? It's not non-ethical, um, but being ethical isn't the point. Isn't the the way to go. Isn't the the way we do it. Yeah. So I'm fascinated by that mm -hmm. and want to ask. So. In Jodo Shinshu and in the Buddhist churches of America, are you folks the originators of the the text that is, I think, Amida's golden chain of love? Yeah. yeah. That's what I thought. <laughs> because in the Zen temple that I was originally trained in in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which was a Korean Zen temple, however, it was adapted for North Americans, we used to chant that regularly, wow. but we would say Buddha's golden chain of love. Mm -hmm. And so to me, there's an, there's an implied ethics, an ethics of self, of discovery and of investigation and of realization embedded in the text of the golden chain of love, which perhaps I'll ask you to recite for our any non-Jodo Shinshu listeners, um, and in, in that, for me, the golden chain of love is an expression which children can understand, everyone can understand, of um, uh, Paticca Samupada, of interbeing and of interconnectedness. And when we consider intercon interconnectedness, then for me, that's the actual, the matrix from which ethics, living ethics arise. Mm -hmm. Am I way off the beam here or not? Tell me. No. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's, I, I, that's totally fascinating. Um, I love that the golden chain shows up in that context um, and has resonance for somebody not in the BCA or uh, student Buddhist context. Um, the golden chain is, is uh, sort of internally problematic. 
Um, I think that many American Shin Buddhists have a real love-hate relationship with that. Um, it's not, it's become canonical in the American context, but it is by far not canonical in Jodo Shinshu. Um, I haven't confirmed this, but I'm pretty sure that it was composed by uh, uh, white converts uh, to Jodo Shinshu in Hawaii in the early 1900s. Um, so it's who who had a sort of larger agenda of creating a sort of an ecumenical kind of Buddhism that was um, uh, intra-sectarian and, and sort of pan-Buddhist. They wrote a, a book that you know explicitly said we're hoping this book will um, do away with differences and divergences in Buddhist teachings and sort of unite Buddhism. Um, interesting stuff, but as a result of that, it's sort of not sectarian, right? So, but it's become this thing that's really like it's really beloved, I think, within the BCA. I mean, even when I hear people say, I don't like the golden chain, they still do it every week, right? <laughs> or um, I've heard from folks who, who are really don't like the golden chain at all in one particular uh, community that just, this, this particular community just rewrote a service book, um, recompiled all of the, um, the sutras and, and songs that they sing and whatnot. And people in that community don't like the golden chain, and yet they included the golden chain in their service book. So it's this weird, like, it's this thing yeah. that people sort of want to distance themselves from because it's not authentically Jodo Shinshu, but it's be, been a part of our community for so long that it kind of is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> could, could we just stop here and recite it? so that There's different versions. So, um, yeah, and I was saying yeah. that in, in our temple, since yours? we were not um, Jodo, Shinshu. Jodo Shinshu, the way we recited it that I remember is... I am a link in Lord Buddha's golden mm -hmm. chain of love that stretches around the world. Um, I will try to keep my link bright and strong. And then there was something about um, I will protect those yeah, who, are who are weaker, weaker than, than myself. myself and fill in for me. See, the, I think basically the two versions, the way I see the two versions is one is I will keep my link bright and strong. I will protect all who are weaker than myself. And then there's another version that is, I will try to keep, I must try to keep my link bright and strong. I will try to protect all who are weaker than myself. Um, okay, so I gotta start from the beginning. <laughs> I am a link in the Buddha's golden chain of love that stretches around the world. I must keep my link bright and strong. Uh, I will try to protect all those weaker than myself. Wow. There's something about being kind and gentle. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> now that I've thought about it. So while I'm looking it up, maybe I can talk about a little about it a little bit. Um, I really didn't like it at first. Mm -hmm. um, I think the I will version of it is not Jodo Shinshu at all. Because it's a little bit too Shinran, yeah, it's too much of like, I will do good. So it, there is an aspect of Buddhism do good, refrain from evil. The most, one of the most basic Buddhist teachings. Shinran throws that out the, out the window. I don't know what good or evil is. How can I possibly do good? How could I possibly refrain from evil? I, don't, I can't know these things. Um, and so that's, to me, the, the kind of the big problem with um, Golden Chain, if it's worded like that. 
If it's worded, I will try to think pure and beautiful thoughts. Mm-hmm. Try do then pure I'm and beautiful deeds, deeds or try to and try to um, protect those who are weaker than myself. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm recalling. May every link in Lord Buddha's golden mm-hmm. chain of love become bright, bright and, and strong, strong, and may we all attain perfect, perfect peace. peace. Yeah, I think that's Close how enough. we used to recite it. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't like it when I first heard it, too, because I I felt as though it. It was so different from my romantic version of things I'd read about Zen, which is iconoclastic and poetic. And, and I thought, here we have this golden chain of love. And, it's, and it seems, sounds like kind of puppy dogs and unicorns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the more I practiced, however, the more it made sense to me. And it comes to my mind frequently and... And it's 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 very meaningful to me. I have to say that. Yeah, I think, and that's that's the thing that I think that that is. I yeah, I didn't grow up in the tradition either, so I have no long term memories of this particular uh, practice. And what you said about sort of its relationship to Pratyasimapada and to interconnectedness, I think, is completely on point. And I don't, uh, and I think that's really valuable. And also, I just I I think that it's really. I think uh, too many times we get sort of hung up on authenticity or what things should be, um, and we want to um, say, oh, because this doesn't line up with some preconceived idea I have about the way things should be, it's somehow not right and we should not take it seriously. But from my point of view, uh, you know, with my background in history and, and ritual and whatnot, I think that noticing how profoundly people are moved by things that that you know the intellectual side think is not real or whatever that's really valuable i mean who cares where this thing came from mm-hmm. i've heard so many stories like this of people who grew up with this and it comes back to them and it helps them figure out how to live their life or it helps them be a better person or you know it has some sort of sentimental meaning to them that to me is meaningful and profound who cares whether or not it's real jodo shinshu like that just seems like kind of beside the point i mean I think we can do the historical criticism, and and and, and that is fascinating <laughs> to me as the the geeky academic to go out and figure out where this stuff comes from. But to sort of step back from that every once in a while and say, you know, that's fantastic that that moved you and that that is part of your practice and it helps you, you know, in in your life. That's that's the important thing, I think. Yeah. So I've come around, um, and I even came up with a um, kind of a. Do you write a song? Yeah, well, the groove-based call-and-response golden chain. So you don't even have to text. So I say, I am a link. <laughs> I am a link. In the Buddha's golden chain of love. And just, in the just Buddha's kind of back golden and, chain of love. Back and forth. That You don't even have to have the text in front. You just say what I said. Okay. Kind of thing, right? So I've reincorporated it. And I'm okay with the try one. I'm not okay with the other one. Because, because some of the words, though... So, so I can totally like criti- crit- criticize so many points in this, but I'm going to take Scott's spirit of <laughs> recognizing the good in it. But if it's, I will be kind and gentle to every living thing and protect all who are weaker than myself, then you have to be a complete vegetarian to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Because Buddhism is not only about human beings. I think it's really important that it's about all beings. And so, to, I, so I don't like the idea of a kid saying, I will be kind and gentle to every living thing. Because maybe later on they realize, I'm not. 
I haven't been my whole life. I, I vowed. It's like vowing to do that when it's worded that way. Especially in a DCA context. With the- yeah, where we're eating chicken all the time and we have meat all over the place. We have, we have no precepts. We have no, we're not a vegetarian at all except the occasional shojin yori, the kind of vegetarian Buddhist meal we'll do sometimes. But not as a constant, not as a practice. So- well, and if you put it that way, it's actually quite narcissistic. Hmm. Really? Like, on one hand, you could say, well, I feel guilty because I'm not living up to the vow of I'm not protecting all who are weaker than myself. But thinking that you even could is an egotistical act of narcissism because it is impossible. Right? So it's already directing things back to this this craving self. Swinging back, yeah, back to the... This is fun. (laughs) (laughs) And I think your key on the interdependence aspect is really important. And I didn't like the idea of the golden chain of love, partly because love is interesting choice of term for this, right? But I'm I'm a link in the Buddha's golden chain of compassion maybe doesn't work for kids so much. But then the chain metaphor for me didn't work because I felt like the chain seemed, I was picturing it more in terms of like karmic bondage. But when you put it in terms of interdependence, it makes more sense where um, may every link in the Buddha's golden chain become bright and strong. So it's not just about me. Mm -mm. It's saying we're all links in this chain, right? And that the the goal, what we're aspiring aspiring for is not just about me. It's about everyone. Um, Do you think that there's any um, allusion embedded in it to Indra's net? And is Indra's net part of... Jodo Shinshu at all, because it certainly is very important uh, as a metaphor, as an image, as a, as a living living metaphor in the teachings that were given mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. There could have been. At that point, I'm not sure if it was yeah. written early 20th century, whether that was a, a commonly known, whether these people knew the metaphor, I'm not sure. Um, but but that's another. I've been using the Brahma's net a little bit mm-hmm. um, at memorial services and stuff to mm. um, to illustrate a high level interdependence. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Um, see, I'm, we're still asking this question: Why Buddhism? Yes. <laughs> right. And I th- I think one possible answer is to try and go beyond my ego self to try and crack out of that just a little bit or have it cracked open for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And. Um, if I can share an experience I recently had, I did a funeral, and uh, one of the children, the son, is a little older than me, like mid-40s maybe, late-40s, and um, I was noticing I, I didn't see much emotion, like sadness. He was not stoic, but, but not sad either, just kind of doing his thing and, you know, let's get, let's do this. And, you know, um, they got everything they needed to get. That's part of a funeral, too, is giving them stuff to do. You got to get the manju and the, <laughs> the, the, the fruit and you got to get the programs printed, right? I think it's kind of good to give them something to do. But you also want them to feel, I think, I, I think it's healthy to feel grief, right? Uh, and I didn't see that in him, which is okay. You know, I, everyone does differently. But at the end, he did, the son did the um, words of acknowledgement words of appreciation. And, you know, he said thank you to the Buddhist Church of Oakland and thank you to Reverend Bridge and thank you to the organist and thank you to the chairperson and all. And then he said, and I want to thank everyone that came to the house, that brought food, that sent 
letters of encouragement, and he, he broke and um, couldn't speak for a couple of seconds, you know, and he said, it, it really helped my mother and my family, right? And I was like, phew, good. But it was because, it was when, it, it was in that context of thank you, right, mm-hmm. to all these people that were helping. He lives a- away from his mom. His mom, I think, parents, I think, are kind of isolated at a retirement community to a certain extent, and then realizing there's all these people, family, family friends, uh, people that his dad worked with had come. Um, and I, I felt like it was really significant that it was when he was like realizing how connected they were that something happened, you know, that he, the emotion kind of hit. Uh, and, and I think that's part of Shinshu is, is um, recognizing that I'm not alone, recognizing that even if I am imperfect, it's okay. I'm part of this chain, this net, mm-hmm. right, of all these interconnected um, beings, right, and that um, that's part of what sustains us, right, and that's part of the awe. If we can kind of recognize that as how awe-inducing, how incredible, how amazing that is, that I'm not alone. I, I don't have to be alone. Um, it's not all about me on, on another angle, right, that, wow, there's, I've, I've received so much. Uh, and I, I think maybe that's part of why my answer to why Buddhism would be so that we can go beyond just me and realize I'm part of something much bigger um, and how amazing that is. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's maybe one of the, the things that Shinshu does offer in a way. Like you, you, you mentioned in the previous episode um, <laughs> about um, how, in a way, our, our religion is kind of a bummer religion. <laughs> and in some ways, we don't have a lot to offer. But Shinshu is interesting because actually, in, in, on one level, it says, if you entrust in Amida Buddha, you'll be born in his pure land. It does offer a paradise. <laughs> mm-hmm. But on another level, it's realizing that I'm not alone. Right? That, that Shinshu is part of it, is realizing that I'm part of this bigger thing that sustains me. Uh, and realize, and that also realizing that I'm okay as I am, that I don't have to be something different. I'm, I'm not a bad person. I'm, I don't have to change somehow. Uh, realizing that bodhisattva activity kind of begins, that I can pay back, try to pay back. Mm-hmm. I'll never be able to pay it all back. Right? But that I think that realizing, oh, I've been receiving so much, I want to give something back, um, is kind of some of that bodhisattva activity that we, we just manifest spontaneously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, and for those of you who are listening to this podcast, here in the studio, um, <laughs> Reverend Harry is, what I'm noticing is that there's a lot of body movement, that mm-hmm. you're somaticizing this as to how you're experiencing it, and and you're kind of bringing your hands towards your body in the receiving, and then you're taking your hands away from your body for the giving back. And and to me, as I look at that, that that really goes back to that this is bodhisattva activity is life activity. It's not through our individual will. It's actually it's the heart pumping. It's the breath flowing. It is. It is the rhythm of both the cosmos and, and of life. And we can be out of sync with it or try to resist it or clamp down or, or not. 
or we can bring ourselves into alignment with it. But in any case, it's not some lone individual who's trying to stage some show Mm -hmm. and either failing terribly or succeeding wonderfully and receiving applause. We we are talking about, I think um, you're pointing out that the whole image of a chain could be seen, you think of the karmic chain. These days, and golden chain of love is kind of old, I think these days the pertinent metaphor is web or net, and we do call the internet, it's a net, or we call it the world wide web. So this, this tissue of connectivity and of responsivity that is now connecting not the entire planet, because there are some folks who don't have access to the internet, but it's going pretty darn far. Is, is for me one of the most exciting technological manifestations of how we can manifest and tie in, how can we, can, we can see how interbeing and interconnectedness manifests and what can be done with it, which is neither good nor bad. There are aspects of both, and in fact, my original Zen teacher used to sometimes just kind of shout at us when we were working around the temple and he would say, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? (laughs) As a koan. And I realized early on, this was not some kind of joke, that remarkably similar, I feel, to what you were saying in the Jodo Shinshu belief system, well, how would I know? I mean, I'm pretty sure I know when I'm creating harm in some ways, yes, and however, the opposite, do I know whether I'm creating good? Mm-hmm. No. For me, that's a very open question, and it, begs, it demands complete humility. Because when we think of all of the people in the world throughout history who have said that they were trying to do good by, quote, unquote, saving others, we can see the very sad lessons of human history that we never, ever want to repeat. Actually, uh, going back to the golden chain, I had a kid come up to me and he said, um, what he did was at school there was a bee and he didn't want to hurt it, so he caught it with his hands to let it out and it stung him. He's like first, second grade. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once he came up to me, he said, he came right up to me during the temple cleanup and he goes, do you kill spiders? (laughs) And I was like, Sometimes, yeah. And he goes, and you're not being kind and gentle to every living thing. And I was like, you're right. I, I didn't, that was the only thing I could say. I was like, I should have turned it into a Dharma message the next time. But, you know, that um, I think sometimes we do cause harm, and yet I'm trying to do good. But I'm trying to do good for me and mine. Mm-hmm. And, and my, um, the previous house um, that I lived in, there were a lot of black widow spiders, outside and inside. And I don't like to kill spiders, but I had a cat. And even though a black widow might not kill me, if my cat went to sniff it and got bit, it could die. And so I made a decision, I'm going to kill the black widow. That was the decision that I made. Um, and so I caused harm in an attempt to stop harm. Was it right? Was it wrong? I don't know. It was the decision I made. Um, I can't possibly protect every living thing. I can't do it. It's beyond my ability. But the the, um, that issue of determining even harm, I think, in, in trying not to harm one, you may harm something else. Mm-hmm. So, 
Absolutely. And I think, again, to return to why Buddhism, I personally experience Buddhism, it's not anything goes. It is not, definitely yeah. not anything goes. However, there is a lot of space for investigation, for reflection, for contemplation in a really sensitive and intelligent way. And there's an openness to the answer of ultimately I do not know and I have to do the best I can right now. Maybe I can minimize the number of spiders that that I kill. Maybe I can, even when there are conflicting interests, can I find a middle way? Can, Mm -hmm. Can I do my best. Mm-hmm. In the practice that I was trained in, there was a lot of do your best. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we don't even know what that is. We still have to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, think of, that, think of the task of raising a child in 2013. Oh, what's a disaster? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, as a parent, I'm, I'm asking you, I'm sure you're an intentional parent, and like every... Every parent, you love your child, you want well-being, health, happiness, education. Yeah, it's, and all, it's terrifying. Yes, and, and it's, <laughs> isn't it, don't you find nervous. it complicated? No, I was nervous Sorry. before. I mean, no, 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 I just, you know, my, my, daughter, my daughter's two and a half. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think having a child in general can be nerve-wracking because you don't know what's going to happen to them. You don't want bad things to happen to them. You don't want good things to happen to them. Uh, I'm intensely aware of how difficult it can be um, raising a daughter in this culture. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm worried when she gets older and, you know, she has to deal with, you know, body image issues or issues about beauty or whatever else. You know, those are just sort of like general abstract worries and there's the more immediate worries. Um, uh, I'm a worrier. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew that. Oh yeah, I worry all the time about all kinds of. I mean, in, the things that I worry about are usually really ridiculous, and like, and I, I think I worry about them because they're beyond control, right? There are things that I have absolutely no way of influencing one way or the other. Anyway, the other day, uh, my daughter said to me um, that she was worried about something, and she's two and a half, so sometimes she'll use words just because she's heard them, and I'm like, do you know? Do you actually know what worried means? Are you actually feeling worried? And then I was like, oh, no, now I'm worrying about her being worried. <laughs> but and then my wife and I had this conversation about, you know, we, we're always imparting things onto our children. Whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, we intend to do right by her and to make sure she raises, we raise a happy, healthy child. But, you know, we have our own neuroses and problems and whatever else that we're going to impart, whether we want to or not. And then, and then the, the really nerve-wracking thing, of course, is that she's going to be whoever she is. You know, and I have to know that, that there's going to be a point where I'm like, okay, you're, you're your own person. Mm. You know, she already is her own person. <laughs> you know? Definitely, and, by that you know, age. Yeah. So, you see it all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awfully fun. But she's her own person. <laughs> and because I was trained in the meditation schools of, of Buddhism, in Zen, and I'm now um, also Vipassana, in how I raised my uh, my son, I think it also per- pertains to why Buddhism, because I taught him from very early on to have names for, and just in a natural way, for different mind-body states, mm-hmm. and to just have awareness of them. And that resulted in 
some pretty interesting things. Like for instance, he said you were a worrier. I come from a family of worriers. And I'm very little prone to depression in my natural state of things. However, I'm prone to anxiety. And I've, I have passed that on, or maybe it's also something genetic in us. Um, anyway, that's just the way we are. And so when my son was getting ready to go from, he was in the gap between preschool and kindergarten. And so there were, I don't know, two and a half months, something like that, before kindergarten. And he was highly anxious. And he worried and worried and obsessively worried. It was ruining his whole summer. It was ruining my summer. <laughs> I was just total bummer. And so finally I said, you know, kindergarten is a long way off. And I think you'll be okay when you get there. But it's, it's a long ways away. Do you think you can just relax and, and stop, stop worrying? And he said, he said, no. He said, I cannot. Because my idea... And by idea, he meant the content of his worry, that kindergarten would be this frightening, horrible, threatening, impossible kind of th situation. He said, he said, I cannot stop worrying because my idea is like a plant on a stand, and it does not want to be moved. <laughs> I know. And his father said, well, you know, there are some plants that are weeds, and you have to kill them. <laughs> I shot in this glance like, shut up. We don't want to go in the direction of killing anything. And so I said, I said, no. I said, your, your, your idea is not, is not a weed, and we're not going to be talking about killing any ideas here. So what I hear you saying is that your idea is a plant on a stand, and it doesn't want to be moved. And I said, but sometimes maybe some things can be moved a little bit to other locations where there's more sunlight and the plant's going to be happier. And he said, nope, doesn't want to be moved. <laughs> I said, then that's very clear and blessings upon you and that's the way it's going to be until it is, it, it is moved. And just having that conversation, as with most forms of awareness, bringing it up into the light of consciousness, talking about it in a reasonable way, um, actually dissipated a lot of the anxiety. Wow. Yeah. So children are completely capable of developing their own, own way of understanding the mind. Oh, yeah. yeah. The plant moved of its own accord. <laughs> We've been we've been teaching our daughter to to breathe when she gets you know she's two and a half so she does you know wants to she wants things she wants them now <laughs> and we often say okay take a deep breath and she's really good at you know <sighs> so it was one night we were at the dinner table and she was just completely losing it she really wanted something and I was like you know and I was trying to reason with her I was like you know you know screaming whining that's not really going to help if you take a deep breath ask me nicely things might be different finally I stopped and I was like I don't know why I'm reasoning with you you're two and a half. And she stopped and looked at me, and she was all, try harder, Daddy. <laughs> it's like, okay, I will try harder. 